Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Megan. And this is Cinema Super Collider. Where we're smashing up cinema one movie at a time. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here, my friend. Can your heart stand the shocking fact about cinema? Cinema Super Collider, we're going to combine two of my favorite things. Number one, the theater. And number two, over-the-top performances by Vincent Price. That's right, we are going to be talking about the favorite of ours, Theater of Blood. Yeah, this movie's from 1972, stars Vincent Price, Diana Rigg, and a bunch of people that you've seen in other British films from around that time. Yeah, it's the a one lot. one guy's Duran Duran from... Milo uh, O'Shea. Milo O'Shea from Barbarella. Mm-hmm. And some of the other guys I'm sure I recognize from other things, too. But, boy, I love this movie. This I love everything great. about this movie. Mm-hmm. The one thing I didn't like about this movie, you convinced me to like about this movie. So I think this movie is close to being a perfect movie, other than the fact that it's frivolous and kind of silly and sort of inconsequential in its way. Everything about it is done right. Yeah, I mean, do you need a movie about a revenge story of an actor who feels he's been scorned by theater critics? No, you don't need that. But you should want it because it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I you And one of the really telltale signs of why this is a good movie is you can summarize it very quickly, like you just did. Right. A Shakespearean actor takes revenge on the theater critics who've done him wrong. That's the story of the movie. Right. It's a revenge story. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Full stop. You don't really... So many of the things we try to recap, we go, okay, how can we recap this without going through point by point? Or how do we uh, account for this part of the plot that goes this way and this part of the plot? You know what? You don't have to account for any of that bullshit no. in this film. Mm-mm. Basically, somebody sat down with the abominable Dr. Fibes and a intro to Shakespeare book and was like, how can I make these two things, this chocolate and this peanut butter, go into each other and become the Reese's peanut butter cup of a movie that it has become? Now, which one came first? Do we know? Fibes. Fibes came first. Fibes, yeah. The, the, there's sort of a rumor that this movie is a spoof of Fibes because there's oh. a number of things that are very similar in it. Oh, yeah. In Fibes, it's, it's a person who supposedly died and has come back to, you know, get his revenge, also played by Vincent Price, whose daughter and or wife, so he's got like a sexy female sidekick that helps him with this. And then also there's nine people he's getting revenge on in each one of the movies. In Fibes, the murders are all biblical plagues, but in Theater of Blood, they're all murders or situations that are murderous in Shakespearean plays. Yeah. This is no different than the Saw films that came later on, 
but this is better in every way than even the best of the Saw films. Hands down. I I guess because they're revenge things? And every piece of revenge is somehow poetically... It, it's always some sort of elaborate, gruesome method of murder, and it always somehow fits some sort of overarching pattern. In the Saw films, it's always about getting revenge on these people in some sort of poetic justice manner, like, oh, he was greedy in life, so he will die in a in a method. It's sort of like Seven in that regard. I think it's closer to Seven, and here's the reason why. Saw, if the original one, once the, the cat is out of the bag about who, you know, the, the mysterious... You know, yeah. Force. What's his name? Joker? No, I can't remember what the killer's name is. Jigsaw. Jigsaw. Yeah, yeah. Once the cat is out of the bag about Jigsaw, then all of the subsequent Saw movies don't really follow the the same thing. But in the first Saw movie, the movie is about the the victim slash people that are are being tortured first, and the killer sort of second because you don't see him. You, I mean, well, you that's do. True. That's true. You do, but you don't. You do yeah. because of all of his little machinations and videos and and mm-hmm. what whatevers. Theater of Blood is all about Vincent Price. Yeah, he in that in, regard, it's completely different. He's in every scene. He is. He's got one-liners that he's zinging around, even when he's not the focus of the scene. He's the one who perpetrates everything in person by you know. By being there. All of these films are revenge films that have a series of gruesome, elaborate, really uh, horrifying murders. Right. But Theater of Blood also has a sense of humor about it. Theater of Blood is better in every way than any of the other movies that we've talked about right now. I mean, Dr. Fives, we screened Dr. Fives as part of our uh, V-Fest lineup, and it's really enjoyable and really fun to look at. It's beautiful. It's really gorgeous to look at, and it's really fun, and it's kind of silly in the same way as as uh, Theater of Blood, but it's not as good as Theater of Blood. Theater of Blood is just awesome. Yeah, I mean, the Theater of Blood has a story to it. Fives is mostly just like, we wanted to do pretty things with horror movie and also Vincent Price. We'll just figure it out as we go. Whereas Theater of Blood's like, we're going to go through these plays, and it's going to have a progression, and it's going to be cool, you're going to love it. Yeah, Vincent Price in the early 70s was, he really took over as the horror movie icon of all, over and above everybody else. There was Boris Karloff earlier on, and there was Bela Lugosi way back when, but Vincent Price really had the, he was the master of the macabre. The macabres. Yes. Yeah. He really was. Well, and it started earlier than the 70s. I mean, he had been a fixture of horror since, I mean, we talked about House on Haunted Hill Mm -hmm. uh, during our month of of Halloween movies. Yeah, was that, about 1960 or 62 or something like that? Uh, I don't know. We don't need to know. Well, but like, uh, I don't know if you remember, I watched that movie Shock. Oh, which I told you about, but we never we didn't do it for the show. Right. Shock is basically a movie about gaslighting. Mm -hmm. And Vincent Price plays a I think a psychiatrist like the Charles Boyer character in Gaslight. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Except Shock was obviously kind of. Yeah, a little (laughs) bit, but it wasn't campy. He was just he was was just a horrible human being who was trying to like gaslight this woman so that he could profit somehow. And I've seen him as a serious actor in some other films from the 40s, I believe. And he was, 
I'm not going to say was a romantic lead, but he was a handsome man. Sure. When he was younger, yeah. Yeah, and he played straight. He wasn't a, a cackling maniac the way he became near the end. But as far as sort of giggling, cackling, murderous maniacs and, and psycho sort of horror villains are, he was a good one. And he seemed to embrace his role doing that. He seemed to get a lot of enjoyment out of being just scary. He did. But on the other side of the coin, one of the reasons he loved doing Theater of Blood, and he was interviewed about it, I think, several times, is that because he had done so many horror movies and became known as, like, the horror guy, specifically, you know, the Edgar Allan Poe kind of thing, you know, he was in Fall of the House of Usher, and he was in The Bat, I think, was another big one he the was Black in. Cat. The Black Cat he was in. Uh, Pit and the Pendulum. Pit and the Pendulum. Mm-hmm. So he was in a lot of those kind of things. And that's what he got cast as for the rest of his career for the most part. Pretty much, yeah. Theater of Blood, while it is still a campy horror movie, it also gave him a chance to do Shakespeare on screen. Is it a little over the top and and probably right on the edge of being... Eh? Yes, but... He got to do those monologues and stuff. Actors and actresses have like a progression through Shakespeare if they're going to do stage shows. And if you skip the progression and then you find yourself kind of towards the end of your career, you don't get a chance to do that kind of stuff. So, yeah, he's not to Charlton Heston or William Shatner levels of corn, corny acting, over the top acting. No, but he is a full, he's on the spectrum. He's a full slab of ham. He the, at the acting the, breakfast. Yes, one of the uh, one of the critics that he murders in this film referred to him as the ham in a ham sandwich. When when um, uh, what what role was he playing? He was like opposite two females. Might have been like was it Lear? I don't remember. But the, he reads the critic's review of him, and the critic referred to him as the slice of ham in a ham sandwich because the the two actresses on the other side of him were okay. Oh, that was Titus Andronicus. Oh, Titus Andronicus. Okay, Which is so. a, it's a that's a kind of a strange review to give someone playing Titus Andronicus because that is the misery play. Mm-hmm. Like everything bad happens in Titus Andronicus. People get their tongues cut out and their hands chopped off, and they eat their children in pies, and yeah, it's a whole bad thing. Yeah, and I remember reading. I, we've discussed this before uh, privately, but I remember reading somewhere that. There's a the whole contingent of people who want to sort of take Shakespeare a little bit out of Titus Andronicus and say that it was one of his early works. He was collaborating with somebody else. It's not the best thing he did. It's overly bloody and overly dramatic and gory and gross. And it's they were trying to sort of like softball. It's it's Shakespeare, but it's, he, you know, he just he just helped out on that one. People, let me tell you about Shakespeare. OK, Shakespeare wrote plays. For people, the way that Michael Bay makes movies for people now. I know that we study... That's that's really bold to say that. Let me finish. Shakespeare fin- and Michael Bay. Let me finish, please, sir. All right. Okay. okay. I know what I we... Just, I, I just... I heard those two words in my earphones and I... I all, my head almost exploded. I understand. There. Okay. I understand. Right. Maybe, okay. Maybe not Michael Bay, but let's... Let's... Like James Cameron and him. Like... He oh, was, okay, sure. I'll take James Cameron. Okay, let's, all right, let's we'll James, go with Cameron. James Cameron. My man head's still exploding a little bit, but please make your point. Allow yes. me to make my point. We overanalyze Shakespeare now that he has been dead for hundreds of years because 
oh, the poetry of it all, and oh, the storytelling. Shakespeare stole a lot of the stories that he put into plays from other sources. He just made them more bombastic and more exciting and entertaining for a general public audience. The people sitting in the plays at the Globe Theater were not usually the intellectuals. I mean, they were there, but you went to the theater to be seen and to, you know, you didn't have TV and radio and stuff. So you had to write a play that was, on the one hand, a quality piece of entertainment that had a good story and characters in it, but you also had to please all of these fucking idiot groundlings that got in and if your actors weren't doing a good job with the story and there wasn't enough fart jokes and blood, they would throw fruit at them and mud and other things. So Shakespeare had to make plays that appealed to a broad audience and had a lot of explosions and horror elements and supernatural shit and like all of the things that in today's society, we go and see at a movie that maybe James Cameron would make. Yeah, slapstick, like puns, all like sex jokes. Oh yeah, all sex of that jokes, stuff. Yeah. Sex jokes, fart jokes, cuckolding jokes. Um, cuckolding was super big back in those days. They're fucking and it's big again. They fucking love a cuckold in those plays because nobody likes to laugh at people more than a guy who's fucking somebody's wife. Oh, whose wife is getting fucked by somebody else. That's well, no, what you laugh cu- at. No, no, no. The cuck- I'm saying the, the cuckold-er is when laughing at the cuckold. E, yes. E. <laughs> yes. 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 And people in the audience think that's fucking hilarious for some I know, reason. I know. Yeah. So all of these things, all of them, and even in the most serious of Shakespeare's plays, there are still dick and fart jokes because he had to put them in there. So Titus Andronicus is a horror-filled play filled with horrible things that happen to people that probably don't deserve them. But at the time, that is the closest thing to going and seeing fucking Friday the 13th. So, Eric, uh, you mentioned what happens in Theater of Blood, but what happens in Theater of Blood? Well, the movie starts with the murder, right? It does. It does, in fact. Actually, the, technically, the movie starts with two people having breakfast. Explain, please. I forgot. Okay. <laughs> the movie starts with Two people, a married couple, having breakfast one morning. Oh, yeah, right. It just happens to be the 15th of March, which is, of course... The Ides of March. Right. And then we're treated to a little back and forth between the husband and wife. The husband gets a phone call and someone from the police department, in quotation marks, has said, hey one of your buildings that you're going to demolish has a bunch of squatters in it. And we can roust them, but it would be better if someone in authority came down here and got them out, and we'll help you. And he's like, okay, that seems perfectly reasonable. I am an English man uh, with no authority other than the fact that I own this building, but whatever. Policeman says to do it, so I'll go. And the wife's like, hey, I had these bad dreams, and I don't think you should go. And the dialogue that ensues between the two of them is pretty much lifted directly from Julius Caesar. Yeah, mirrors it very Yeah, well, actually, her describing her dreams is exactly what Caesar... Well, literally the same. Yeah, exactly the the thing about, like, hey, you shouldn't go out 
Um, well, she says, I've seen your, your astrology chart or something. Or, yeah, something or, like that, right? Ma- he's March like, is not a good month for you. And he's it, like, it has evil yeah, yeah, portents. Yeah. He's like, whatever. I'm just going to go take care of this. So I'll He see. responds with the same line that, that Caesar responded yes. with. It's like uh, something like, oh, we can't pay attention to all that silly nonsense. Yeah. Uh, uh, you can keep your astrology and something else. I can't remember exactly yeah. what the line is. Yeah. Anyway, there's a lot of things where we're not going to remember the exact line. Because there's some plays that are included in this movie that I never read, like Troilus and Cresta and Cymbeline. Yeah, we haven't memorized, I haven't memorized any lines from Shakespeare other than the ones that sort of filtered down to me through culture. Right. So So he rolls up on his uh, decrepit fucking building that I don't understand why it's still standing, but whatever. And it is fucking filled with bums. Mathis drinking bums, which is essentially sterno or antifreeze, right? Yeah, it's methyl alcohol, and it's something. It's it's painted pink, it's purple. It's purple. Yeah, and it is some. It they used meth, methyl alcohol, wood alcohol, as a solvent in Britain at some time, mm-hmm. and they we read about this a, a long time ago. But they put some sort of dye in it that would indicate that it is undrinkable or something like that, and it was bright purple, mm-hmm. so that it you know it looks like purple drank. Right. You know. Like, Which to me would mean it would be more appealing to drink. So maybe you should have made it look like black or something. Yeah. At the time, though, it didn't look like any other. It didn't look like anything that was a, a, a spirits that you should be drinking. Sure. There's brown spirits. There's clear spirits. There's ones that are even colored green. But there's nothing that is bright purple. At least not at the time. That you <laughs> no, should drink. Like, like sour pucker or something. Yeah. Like no, no, no. Like purple, purple skinny girl or whatever, you know. So it's uh, yes. be something. Like, uh, yes, the purple skinny girl. I like to get that on the rocks at the... Uh, the purple popsicle. Uh, so, right. So, he shows up and the police are like, oh, hello, please go take care of this. And he tries to scoot all these bums out of his building. And lo and behold, they don't like that. And then they stab him a bunch. And while this is going on, we have a slow reveal of the police hat and mustache coming off of Vincent Price, who happens to be there with... His sidekick goon, who is also wearing a mustache and some mutton chops, and fabulous 70s sunglasses, and he proceeds to give a monologue uh, while the guy's getting stabbed to death. Yeah, he says, you didn't like my performance in Julius Caesar when I gave the best performance of my life, and you said this and this and this about me. Now you are going to die. Right. And he dies. Step, 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 step. Yeah. Yeah. So then we are treated to uh, the infamous monologue from Julius Caesar in a rundown, weird, like, theater that is kind of half, like, really opulent looking and half full of bums. Because yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. It's like if you took an old theater and just restored it enough so that it was still super creepy and sort of moldy and crumbling, but like really baroque and over-designed and it's just so, so cool. Yeah. It's just nice. So our our good pal Vincent Price on stage, full stage makeup, uh, that very stylized Shakespearean makeup, which is grease paint and dreams. And he's giving the friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I have come to, I've come to praise Caesar, not to bury him, blah, 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 blah. Brutus is an honorable man. Yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Right. Uh, and so, of course, the bums that are his, he has, he has bum goons. He has two, he has a, he has a lieutenant goon. Right. And he has his army of bum goons, the, the meth drinkers. Right. They're basically the groundlings, honestly. Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, they, they're all dirty 
and crazy and drinking. One stands out, the, the lady with the orange hair, the oh ugly teeth. Yeah, she's great. So we, as we were watching the credits for this film, we noticed that there is a credit for a choreographer of the Meths Drinkers. Yeah, they call, was it, one call of it a the, goon wrangler, right? Goon, yeah, goon wrangler, like uh, cor- goon choreography. Yeah. And I, in my head, he was just like, okay, guys, all right, so... Act as crazy as you can. Also, touch everything. That's your choreography. Just touch. Like, if we are supposed to be, like, menacing somebody, just touch them. Touch them a lot. Yeah, they, they swarm around you and touch you and, like, with their you. dirty fingers. Yeah, and then... And breathe their icky methyl alcohol breath on you. And then redheaded lady who has, like, like weird scarecrow hair. It's like, yeah. it's like she has a really, really, really high hairline... It's like kind of halfway back her skull, it seems like. And then just a lot of this orange hair. Yeah. She's like the city on fire girl from Sweeney Todd. Except more energetic. Yes. And less. Less musical. Less musical. <laughs> right. But I think I think the other bit of choreography that the goon wrangler gave them was like, okay, guys. All right. So if you can get into the shot, like if you can get your face on camera, you win the day. That's we're having a contest. Whoever can do the most mugging on camera wins. So, orange-haired lady mostly won. Oh yeah, she was great. The big, big sweaty guy also won a lot too. Yeah, he was good too. Yeah, yeah. There was big sweaty guy, and there was like crazy orange-haired lady, and then there was skinny, uh, skinny old guy with no hair. Skinny old guy with no hair, and those were like the the main like bum goons, the ones that we can recall. And there was a, a rest of the army of bum goons, and then there's a lieutenant goon who looks like a really swinging cool hip guy from like night the movie is from 1972 and he looks like the ideal swinging hip guy from 1972 he's always wearing shades he's got mustache and mutton chops and a big fro of hair mm-hmm. and always wearing like high style fashion you know kind of a slim slender kind of trendy guy and always sort of following vincent price around whose name his name is lionheart in this film yes edward lionheart edward lionheart and he's always following edward lionheart around and doing his bidding and and assisting him in as lieutenant goon right but lieutenant goon has a bit of a secret eric do you want to say what the secret is well uh, maybe we could reveal it later. okay we'll reveal it later that's cool okay so we've gotten so there are nine critics in the critics circle that decides this award that is it's basically like the the tony award for london theater yeah it's the shakespeare award no it's not the shakespeare award no you keep thinking it's the shakespeare award it's like it's like a golden shakespeare it's just it's a thespian oh yeah that's not shakespeare shakespeare didn't look like that oh i thought it was a shakespeare award no no and in fact the the head critic who uh i can't remember his name no 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 i don't mean i don't mean it was a reward uh, an award for performing shakespeare i thought it was just a statue of the bard of avon given to the best actor and it was for the best actor overall in the year but the, okay. the statue was in the form of shakespeare that's all i meant uh, okay sure yeah, yeah i'll give yeah. you that yeah but you you kept referring to it as the Shakespeare award, yeah. and I was like, no, 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 it's no. just for an it's like for the best actor, yeah, it's like the Oscar is like a guy, right. This award is like a guy, but it looks like William Shakespeare like leaning on a stump or something like that he was it was cash, yeah, cash Shakespeare yeah. He was like, yo, I'm wearing hey, some... man, I'm leaning on a thing. I'm, I'm wearing some tights, I got no pants on, yeah, Shakespeare without pants, yeah, I don't know, I don't understand fashions mm. from that period of time. They baffle me. It's all quilting and tights and collars. 
Yeah, you'd think tights would be a hard thing to come by in Shakespearean times. I mean, well, it's like modern fabrics that stretch like that, right? If they were, if they were just going to be held up by their own accord, yes. But I mean, people used to knit stockings. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, they weren't filled with elastic and stuff, but you knit the stockings, and then you did. So, if I mean, if you're a lady, you like did something to clip them up, and if you were those a guy, tights, tights and hose that they wore in those days were made of wool. I imagine. Yeah. Ooh. Can you can you imagine the yeah oh the, yeah the foulness oh well uh, look look back in this period of time you wanted like layers of things to keep your stink in that was the that was sort of I think the plan if you couldn't afford perfumes to cover the stink up you wanted layers to keep the stink in is my that's my take on this yeah okay I believe it that's Megan's costuming take so after the first murder we cut to the critic circle meeting in the the main critic's beautiful, opulent apartment above the Thames River. Yeah, let's do real talk here, guys. Theater critics don't make that kind of money unless they do something else. They're not they're not pulling in three thousand square feet fancy ass flat with like expensive works of art and views of the Thames and you know, uh, memberships to the fencing club. They just don't. Theater yeah. critics don't get paid like that. Yeah. Theater critics mostly get paid in the knowledge that they have destroyed and crushed the hopes and dreams of actors and actresses in the shows that they critique. Yes. yes. I mean, not that I've ever been critiqued by a theater per- critic person before. So they're all sitting around and the secretary comes in and says, wait, you don't want to do this today because one... The one guy that isn't here, we just found out that he was murdered. He was stabbed a million times. Dead. Dead. And they're all shocked. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, huh, well, that sucks. So I guess we'll just go about our business. And they yeah, do. Everybody's shocked. And they go to the funeral the next day. But one of the people isn't at the funeral because he is now being murdered in the manner of Troilus and Cressida. Right. He's invited by Edward Lionheart. To come to the theater. His name is Hector Snipe. Yes. The theater critic, Hector Snipe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Charles Dickens couldn't do better than that. Look, look. Alan Rickman played two of the uh, the characters with names closest to that. One of them was Reverend Slope in the Barchester Chronicles. Mm. And the other one, of course, is Severus Snape from the Harry Potter everything. Mm. Right. So I'm just saying, it's a, it's a thing in Britain to have... Names like that. Yes. And a critic might be a hectoring critic, and he might snipe at you. Right. You know. Well, And, and it- he's playing the character, Hector, from Troilus and Cressida, who's stabbed to death with a spear. Which is what happens. And I'm going to say drug around by a horse. Yes. Although dragged would be the correct word, but I'd like to think he was drug around by a horse. Fair. So. So, yeah. So, he, Hector, Snape, Snipe, not Snape, that's another one. Uh, Hector Snipe shows up at the theater because he's been invited there by Lionheart, who uh, committed suicide two years before, or so everyone thought, but they never found his body because th- otherwise we wouldn't have a movie. Uh, and he's like, oh, he's like, hey, I'm really glad that you invited me to your weird sort of spooky kind of burned out theater with all of these goons laying around. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I'm really excited to get your story and, and write an article about your triumphant return to the stage. And at this point, he kind of doesn't seem like that bad of a guy. I mean, he didn't like 
uh, Lionheart's play that he did during the infamous season that he felt he deserved an award. But, I mean, present day Hector Snipe is kind of being a good guy about things. Yeah. Well, you know, not all of these guys... Look, some some critics deserve to be murdered, but oh, yes. not all critics deserve no, no, no. to be murdered. Hashtag not all critics. Look, critics play an important part in the way that we look at art. We talked about it a little bit in... The eraser head. You could look at us episode. as being critics of a sort. Well, we have opinions, certain... which is yeah. <laughs> which is kind of what do. critics. I mean, that's kind of what critics do is they have opinions, and sometimes their opinions are right, and sometimes they're just not. My opinions are right. Eric is very firm. They're right for me. Opinions, yeah. Opinions with Eric Algren. Yeah, so he's not he's not so bad. But... I mean his 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 review of Troilus and Cressida was kind of a backhanded compliment because it started off like. Oh, you know, this guy's so great, blah, 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 blah. And then he's like, in his own mind, he's wonderful. But, you know, in reality, he's just a big slice of ham. Yeah. Now, Troilus and Cressida is a play that neither one of us is really familiar with, but it involves the Trojan War. Right. It involves a character named Hector, who is murdered by a bunch of people he thinks are his friends. Mm -hmm. And they stick him with a spear. And so, uh, uh, Lionheart reads a little bit from Troilus and Cressida and runs this guy through with a spear. Mm -hmm. And then we cut to the funeral of the first guy that died, the Julius Caesar critic. Uh, and the funeral gets done. And people are like, I wonder where that other guy... I wonder where Mr. Snipe is. I wonder where he went, because he's supposed to be here. Like, there's... It's not like we have that many friends. All We're only friends with theater critics, and we have wives occasionally. So where the fuck was he? And on cue, a horse comes galloping down the lane, dragging a body behind it. Yeah, and uh, it's, you know, everybody, all the theater critics are there at the other, their friend theater critic's funeral, and another theater critic shows up dead. Mm -hmm. And they start to go, hmm, that's kind of odd. You know, two is kind of a coincidence. They were both murdered in bizarre, unusual ways, very close to one another, but strange things happen. Yeah, strange things. And the cops are also like, this is weird. Um but we don't know anything about anything, so we're just going to kind of... We'll fill out a report and get back to you. Yeah, we'll just hang out. A, a lot of times in this movie, the cops call on the, the head critic to, like, solve their crimes for them. Because they just can't be bothered to, like, do any investigation. So what's the next death? Is the Cymbeline? Yes, Cymbeline is the next death. Uh, Cymbeline is a play that neither Eric nor I are particularly familiar with, but... The basic premise of Cymbeline is there is a king in Britain who has two sons who are kidnapped and absconded away early on in their lives, I guess. And so the king is left with one child. Her name is Imogen or Imogen. I think. I don't know. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one or the other. So she really wants to marry this guy named Posthumus and secretly does. And the king gets pissed off because the heir to the throne, it needs to be a royal heir, and Posthumus is not royal. He's not noble. So she got knocked up with some unroyal... No, she, she didn't get knocked up. Oh. But Posthumus is exiled, and the queen of Britain has a son from a previous king, marriage, whatever, who knows, shrug, no. uh, and that guy wants to go with Imogen, because they're not actually related by blood or anything. And if they got together, then that would do what needs to happen. But Imogen is very faithful to her exiled husband, Posthumus. So 
hijinks ensue. And one of the things that... Oh, so her cousin, they want her to marry her cousin. Right, but not by blood. No. Wait, her mother Wait. Her mother is the queen. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. the queen's son okay. from another marriage. Yes. So they so, are yes, related. Yes, they are related by blood. Yes. Shakespeare gets real confusing, guys, sometimes. Anyway, so they're supposed to get together. Hijinks ensue. There is a scene in the play where she's asleep in bed. The other guy, the cousin, ends up being put in bed. And he doesn't have a head on him anymore. It got cut off in some of those hijinks that ensued. So she wakes up and there's a headless corpse lying next to her. Mm-hmm. There's also a bit that happens earlier in the play where there's a giant chest that the guy who... It, it gets complicated. You know what this sounds like? This sounds like they could make it into a Star Wars film. I mean, there's enough like intrigue and characters and like like secret relationships between different people and people being kidnapped and absconded away and like fights among the, the, these are, the, you know, people who are writing the new, the, the new endless star Wars movies that are coming out should take some of Shakespeare's lesser known works and sort of tweak them a little bit and put those into the star Wars movies. There's a reason there's a free idea. From there's there a, to you. but there's a reason they're lesser known because they're not great. <laughs> Well, I know. It, There's yeah. also a whole subplot where she pretends to be a boy. Attack of the Clones was great. Was it? No. No. I'm mm. just saying, it doesn't have to be great to be a Star Wars movie. That's all oh, I'm saying. okay. Anyway, this is our long way of saying the third guy that gets killed, uh, he gets his head chopped off while he's sleeping in bed next to his wife. And there's a whole, like, comedy routine that happens because... There's a giant chest that just shows up in their room. Lionheart and his lieutenant goon are hiding in this giant chest. Right. They jump They jump out at night. Well, they sneak out, creep out at night, and uh, stick a hypodermic full of tranks in both the wife and the husband. Right. Tranquilizing them both. Then they're dressed in surgeon's garb, and they put a big rubber sheet down mm-hmm. and surgically remove this guy's head. Right. Because that's in necessary? A, I don't know. In a, a, a just a gloriously disgusting scene, but you don't see... There's a certain amount of gore that you see, like blood spurting in the air. Right, but it's like comedy blood. Yeah, it is. It's it's funny, but it's still gross. Well, and, and so one of the things that happens during this sequence is like, he asked, uh, uh, Lionheart asks for a lipstick so that he can mark where he's going to cut the head off. But right. like, do you really need to mark no. where you're going to cut the head off? No. Right. There's there's this thing called the neck. It's like the, right. It's the, pretty the clear that, where that is going to go. the body. That's where you go. That's where you cut. But, you know, they clearly saw in some, you know, doctor, medical procedural kind of thing that you've got to, you got to make your incision mark. Mm-hmm. Well, and it amps up the horror a little bit because, mm-hmm. and they're playing this weird sort of the love theme. Uh, oh yeah, it's, it's real like like kind of like, like swinging. syrupy. Vi- no, this is like the syrupy violin one. That's, oh, the swinging right. love theme is when you see uh, uh, Diana Rigg show up in. Uh, that's true. In uh, that's uh, true. Like go-go boots or whatever. Mm-hmm. But this is like this real sweet violin theme, and the guy's draping this rubber sheet over this dude, and you see him drawing the dotted line around the neck, and you're going, "Oh my god, he isn't, is he?" Oh my God. Oh my God. I know what's going to happen. So it's that, that classic sort of Hitchcock suspense idea where you see the bomb under the chair. You know what's going to happen. And they just keep on yeah. amping it up, amping it up. And it's great. Right. It's so good. Somehow they get out of the house. We don't know. It doesn't matter because the, the action cuts to the next morning when the maid brings in their breakfast. Again, guys, theater critics don't have maid bring any breakfast money. They just don't. 
He's living in like a castle or something. I mean, it's like he must have married into money because theater critics like look, they're respected, but I don't know of any of them that I've ever run across that have like fuck you money. Yeah, the maid comes in and does a pratfall, which is awesome. Her pratfall is great. She, she gets thumbs up. Screams and just falls flat on her back. Yes, like just just like a person who would pass out, just, just dead, spl- yeah. just dead away, falls it's, out. It's, it is a very very good fall. Whoever that actress was, she gets thumbs up from me on her fall. Yeah. And then, of course, the wife, wife wakes up and the head rolls off the bed and there's a lot of screaming and... There's screaming and blood and head stuff sitting on the floor and all this kind of thing. Right. Right. So... Uh, so now we go back to the cops and the head theater. We're going to call him the head theater critic. I don't remember what his name is. It doesn't matter. He's the head theater he's critic. He's the head guy. And the head theater critic goes, I think there's some connection between these murders. Look. This one happened this way. He just this happens stabbing. Be according to uh, he just happens to have a list of the the plays that Lionheart had performed in, like on his wall, like a poster. Mm-hmm. He was like, right. "Come here, and I will point at things." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like the list of all the plays that Lionheart did in his famous season where he didn't get his award that he thought he deserved. Right. And so the the critic says to the cop, like, look, the first guy died with like a million stab wounds, just like in Julius Caesar, the first play on the list. Then the second guy died by being hit with a spear and dragged around by a tail uh, on the tail of a horse, just like the second thing, Troilus and Cressida. Now, that could just be a coincidence. But when you get the third one right. of about the wife waking up in bed next to the headless body, and that's from Cymbeline, and the third play is Cymbeline, you know, it's getting to be a little bit convincing. And the cop's like, well, you know, you're really, you're not a policeman, and you don't really understand these things. That's a that's an interesting way out theory. That's a theory. There. And then he's like, he's like, okay, well, the fourth play on here is Merchant of Venice. So uh, how do they get killed in Merchants of Venice? And the theater critic's like... Well, actually, they don't get killed in Merchants of Venice, so, mm-hmm. hmm. Yeah, so the theater critic is lured by a sexy lady. Right, who we've seen before because we did an episode on the Avengers. The sexy lady is played by Diana Rigg. Right, who was Emma Peel in the Avengers, yeah. uh, among other things. And she's wearing a, an outfit. She's a vision in white. Her hair is blonde, which is not her normal auburn hair color. Mm-hmm. And she's wearing white go-go boots, which are beautiful. They're great, guys. She gets credit for go-go boots. They're like they're like go-go boots, but they kind of look like spats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's the and she sidles up to the one of the film critics who's, who's the Lech film critic, right? And she goes up to him and she bats her long false eyelashes, which are also amazing. Yes. As the camera zooms in to an extreme close up on her face so you can see her perfect skin and her perfect lips while she's seducing this guy. And it wasn't hard to seduce this dude. Yeah. Basically, she's she's like, come with me to the theater and see my play and then you can go out with me later. And he's like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Mm. Now, this is more like theater critics, guys. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying. (laughs) Just saying. A creepy lech. I'm not saying that all of them are. I'm just saying some of them. You know, it's either the theater critic sort of position would tend to attract creepy leches, or creepy leches might choose to go into that field we don't know we don't know correlation is not causation it's true so not all theater critics so this theater critic and the sexy lady go to uh vincent price the uh uh theater of doom theater of doom now he's not a, he's not a parent when they arrive no it's all of the goons have like 
they have been placed on stage. They've been given various props to use. There's like a judge chair. Yeah. They're going to do the courtroom scene. Well, the redheaded, the redheaded goon is sitting in the, the chair. Right. She's right. got a crown on and mm-hmm. she's, she's hamming it up. She's sitting in judgment and it's the courtroom scene from Merchant of Venice. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, the film critic is given the uh, role of, what's his name? Horatio? No. Antonio. I Antonio, believe. yeah. And they're going to do a bit. And Shylock appears from out of nowhere. And of right. course. Well, this is living theater. This is like their oh, yeah. experimental theater where, yeah. like, it's not just that you're seeing the play, it's like you get to be in the play. Right. And the theater critic's going, in his mind, his his internal sort of monologue is going, oh, this is such bullshit, but this chick is hot. And she is. It's yeah. fucking Diana Rigg. She's yeah. great. Oh, and she's like all over him, and he's like creepy old lutch. So, I mean, it's like, you know, oh, yeah, I'll go along with your theater of the mind sort of new, you know, participatory play thing. Yeah, why not? And so, uh, Shylock comes out of the wings in like full regalia. I mean, like, like. I will say of all of the the Vincent Price as the, whatever character costuming that they did, this is probably I think the best of them. I think it looked the best. Yeah, it's like the classic Shylock costume with the full beard and the the hat and the, mm-hmm. all of the 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 Hebrew symbols and stuff and and the robes and I mean it's it's the full Megillah. And they come out and start doing the courtroom scene. And the part where uh, Portia is supposed to save, uh, what's his name? Antonio. <laughs> Antonio. I want to call him Cassio for some reason, like he's a keyboard. No, that's not in this play. Antonio. Decinio so, is also in this play, but Antonio yeah. is the love interest. Antonio is the merchant. He's the titular merchant. Yes. And so uh, uh, someone named Portia, not like the car, but like P-O-R-T-I-A, is the uh, uh, lady lawyer from... Um, from Merchant of Venice, and she's supposed to save him on some sort of a bullshit technicality. But they explain to the theater critic, they say, well, you know what? That was kind of bullshit, that technicality that he got off with in this play. So I'm actually going to take the pound of flesh nearest to your heart that you owe me. Mm-hmm. And so rather than take a pound of flesh near the heart, he just cuts the fucking heart out. Yes. So you get to it's see. glorious. Yeah. My favorite bit of this exchange is like, they they kill the guy. They cut his heart out. It's steaming. It's steaming. A steaming bloody heart. It's which is, great. Which is great. And then him and Diana Rigg walk over. Uh, Vincent Price and Diana Rigg walk over to a like old fashioned scale. And yeah, like a balance. Like a balance scale, yeah. and uh, it puts it on one of the sides, and it, like you hear it go clunk onto the table. And they of course go a pound of flesh, no more, no less. And, and he's like, well. This one seems to be a little bit more. So he like cuts just a little chunk of it off and like throws it over his shoulder and it balances out. And he's like, yeah, it makes like a wet slapping noise. Yeah. When he throws it down like, <laughs> yeah. like this juicy plopping sound. The sound in this film is great. It's too. really good. It's really good. Yeah. They did some good stuff in here. Yeah. So uh, they're still speculating at fucking head theater critics, fancy ass flat overlooking the Thames about what the fuck's going on. Yeah. And the secretary's like, hey, this present came for you. Yeah, and it has a little tag on there. It's like from uh, from the- from lecherous theater critic. Sorry, I couldn't be there today, but my heart is with you. So of course they open it up, and the heart is in there, and everyone a, everyone's like, "Oh, it's a heart in a box." Yeah, yeah, gross, it's beautiful. It's, yeah, it's glorious. So on to the next murder, right? And and the head theater critic's like, "Huh? Well, there's no murder in Merchant of Venice, but I guess." 
we're not playing by the rules anymore. And then the cops finally are like, oh, maybe we should like get all of the theater critics and put them under surveillance or protection or something. Right. But you know what? This doesn't even another thing that's so great about this film. Yes. That doesn't even play into it other than to pay lip service to it. Because us as audience members are saying, so we're watching this. For God's sake, man, the police should put some sort of guard on these people. And for the sake of us watching, they have the police, so we're going to put a guard on these people. And, you know, Lionheart just, he continues to murder people along these, this this path that he's doing. Yeah. And the guard doesn't really matter at all. But it's for us just to show that they thought of that. Right. It's It's the same thing where it's like a horror movie and everyone has cell phones, but they need to show that there's no service. Exactly. It's, it's exactly that. It's thing. like it's like. Well, why didn't they just call the fucking cell phone? And mm. it's like, well, because there were no bars. Right. And you know what? We've come to expect that, and we don't ask questions about that. And this, they're being protected by the police, and the police are very easily evaded at every single step along the way. And you know what? It's fine. They're not good. Cops. It's not. That's not what this movie's about. Is they're like not good cops. <laughs> no, they really guys. Are. They're really shitty cops. Yeah. Just saying. So I think. What ends up happening next is they end up going to Diana Rigg. She's she's a makeup artist, and she's like on a shoot somewhere. Right. It it I think is apparent at this point that Diana Rigg she's revealed to be Linehart's daughter. Yes. And I think it's apparent to us as an audience in the theater that she is in collusion with her father. Right. I think yeah, there's no question that that's going on. That is exactly... Because there's no question that she was the blonde. I mean, as they, you know, she looked different, but she's the same person. She's the same person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So she's on set. She's doing some makeup for somebody. And they roll up on her and like, okay, well, you know, all this stuff has to do with your dad and your dad's dead and you're not. So you must be the one who's doing all this stuff. And she's like, no, 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 no. She's like, my dad is dead. But I don't have anything to do with all this stuff. So, you know, don't, you know, don't, don't bring that shit to my doorstep. Yes. Meanwhile. Meanwhile. Across more, town at a wine tasting. More murders are happening. Yeah. They go. What's the name of the wine merchants they go to? It's Is Clarence it? and Sons. Clarence and Sons. I have literally seen this movie probably a half a dozen times. And I never met, I never noticed that until we watched it tonight. So the next murder is going to be from. Richard the Third. Richard the Third. Uh, and there's one theater critic that is part of this panel that is a he's basically a, a drunk. He likes to drink a lot. Yeah, we had the Lech theater critic. We had the drunk theater critic. Um, the, the other ones were just the generic just, theater critics. Yeah, yeah, generic guys. So he gets invited to a wine tasting. The cops bring him to the wine tasting at Clarence and Sons, and. The thing, the the reason I was like, oh, god damn it, why did I never notice this before? Is the next murder is going to be the the drowning in a butt of wine that happens in Richard the Third to a character. Uh, but I know, uh, a, the Duke of Clarence is drowned in a butt of wine, and his sons were the princes in the tower that get murdered. So I was like, oh fuck, why did I never notice this before? And so yeah. I felt dumb. Yeah. So uh, Lionheart comes out and does now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by the son of York speech. Right. In very over the top 
Richard the Third classic cost- Richard costuming, III. and it's just like he has a it, fake nose yes. on, and he's got like a yeah. It's it's it is that is the Richard the Third from the twentieth early part of the twentieth century, going all the way yeah. back to whenever with the hunchback and all of like the gory, awful, ugly makeup, and he does the whole Richard the Third thing, and it's really great. Yeah, and then they drown a guy in a in a big thing of wine. Yeah, which is. You know, it's still it's a sort of a bad murderous death, but it's not one of the one of the worst ones we've seen. Look, Shakespeare got creative with his death because if you had seen one Shakespeare sword fight that ended in death, you'd seen them all because, you know, you went to the theater all the time. There was nothing else to do. So if you drowned a dude in a in a cask of wine, that's exciting. Sure. Yeah, that sounds great. Look, it is. It's just like seven. It's I. I still maintain that it's still a little bit like Saw. One of the things that you wanted when you went to see a Shakespeare play is you wanted to see some weird ass, unusual death or death trap or some horrifying thing happen to some dude. Yeah, and that's why get... you go to these torture porn movies, and that's why you went to see Shakespeare. Oh yeah, you wanted to see a head get cut off. Yeah, you wanted to see you know somebody's tongue get cut out or mm-hmm. their eyes get gouged out. There's mm-hmm. a lot of good like body horror in Shakespeare. But there's also just a lot of like regular death. And that brings us to our next play on the list, which is Romeo and Juliet. Right. So this is this is the part where when we first started watching the movie, Eric's like, you know, I like this whole movie except for this fencing bit. And I was like, but you kind of need the fencing bit. And I like it. And then we watched it and Eric agreed with me. Yeah, I changed my tune on that. So our head theater critic guy with his police escort Roll up to the fencing club that he's driving his beautiful Jaguar. Oh my god, antique Jaguar! Fucking cars in these movies. Theater critics don't have antique Jaguar money. They don't. It's glorious. It's, it's beautiful. So beautiful. It's great. They also probably don't have money to be in an exclusive fencing club. But pff. yeah, but yeah, there we are. There we are. So they're doing Romeo and Juliet. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking. Oh, well, he's going to drink poison and then someone's going to stab themselves. No, there are other deaths in Romeo and Juliet. Despite the fact that it was about the lovers, it was also about two houses warring with one another. And they're in, I think, basically the middle of the play. Mercutio and Tybalt get into a sword fight over... He bites his thumb at him and like that it's sort of just, thing. It's like a yeah. lot of like... It's just fucking stupid shit. It's, ga- it's basically it's gangland gangs. bullshit. Yeah, and they're it's... just like shouting insults at one another until the point of where you can't back down without looking like a like a loser in front of your friends. Right. Yeah. And, and so they somebody has to die. Sure. Right. So they have a big fencing sword fight at the, at the very beginning of which... Because, you know, fencing foils have a button on the the tip of them so that you don't yeah, it typically doesn't just pluck off no the... <laughs> it doesn't no it's it's part of the foil but uh yeah. uh of course like vincent Price's sword doesn't have the tip on it and so in fairness he pulls the tip off of the other guy's sword yeah he pulls back his fencing mask and reveals ha i am lionheart yes and the critic goes i knew you were behind all of this yeah, and then what ensues is a wacky pants fucking like over the top sword fight between foil fight between yeah, a fencing match in a gym. Yeah, in a gym, but it's not just like a regular fencing thing where you know they've got like the the mats on the floor and you're, you stay in the the 
column of of fighting area Mm -hmm. no they're like running up and down the bleachers there's one point where the two of them are bouncing on trampolines with swords yes fighting one another while they're bouncing back and forth crossing on different trampolines and this is why i like this swinging on a rope there's one yeah the swinging on the rope is one of the things it's uh as eric said halfway through he's like it's like jim kata yeah, it's but, just like it. They got a pommel horse there. They do. Yeah. They don't use the pommel horse, though. No, but he uses one of the parallel bars to swing off of. He, he does. Kick. This is Vincent Price doing this. He did his own stunts for this movie. He didn't, guys. No. You mean Vincent Price wasn't fencing with a guy on a balance beam? No, and later yeah. on, he's also not climbing up onto the roof of the theater. Oh. Yeah. That's right. And so this this really crazy fight's going on, and Vincent Price is winning. Like, totally winning. He's slicing this guy to ribbons, really. He's a good sword guy. Yeah. He's he's cutting him up and cutting him up. And then he gets him down on the floor. And I think the best part of this scene is this monologue that he delivers about how you critics are no good at anything. All you do is snipe at us who have this noble profession who work our asses off night and day for no money and tear us down because you can't do anything your own damn selves. And it's like you, you, you're watching this and you're listening to like every single theater person who sees this thing is going, Oh yes. Oh yes. Kill him. Kill him. I'm not saying that there weren't a lot of people involved in this particular film that probably got their start on stage somewhere and were like, Oh yeah, I'll make a movie about fucking theater critics. This is the creed de corps from every actor who's ever gotten a bad review yeah i mean it really it, it taps down into the thing and and vincent price delivers it flawlessly yeah it's good. it's really great that's good yeah and the, the head critic goes like okay fine just kill me and vincent price you know lionheart makes the tragic mistake he's like i'm not gonna kill you because I, you told me to kill you i'm gonna kill you when i want to kill you it might be tomorrow it might be in a week i don't know when i feel like killing you i'm gonna kill you but i'm not gonna kill you just because you told me to kill you yeah later yeah, smoke bomb and out of there. I'm out. Yeah, so. so 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 head critic goes to the police and he's like, I seen line. I've seen Lionheart. He's real. Every single one of these crimes has happened in sequence, like the poster of Lionheart. I can predict what the next thing is going to be, and the cops are like, Yeah, Lionheart's dead, and uh, you're probably a little confused on this. We're really not that sure. You're not a you know. Yeah, he's like, No, the next play is Othello. And they're like, and? and he's like, the next play is Othello. Like Othello chokes out his wife and kills her. And they're like, yeah, but I mean, none of the critics that remain are like, they don't. They, I mean, they're not somebody. Nobody is somebody's wife. Nobody's somebody's wife. There's so, one female critic, but she's clearly not married. Yeah. And so, so that's that doesn't work. So they're like. Your logic does not work. So we're just going to continue to go about our business and you have a good day, sir. Cut right. to. So then comes the Othello murder. Now explain how that happens. So, uh, it, so okay. So the critic. Now, I, I will let you, I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> no, you're pointing. So yeah. what? I'm going to let you finish. But I'm saying like us in the audience now watching this movie have reached the point in the film where we are just going I want to see how he's going to engineer the next grisly murder. Yes. We don't care anymore about any of the details no. of the story. No, no, no. We just want to see people die. Yeah. It's true. It's, that's what we're at. So what happens is the the critic in question that is being targeted gets a phone call from henchman, no, numero uno, sidekick henchman, who's like, hey, buddy, you shouldn't work late tonight. You should probably get the fuck home because your wife is... 
You gotta you gotta see what your wife is up to. She's making the beast with two backs. So we see Vincent Price show up to this townhome in a fabulous white seventies suit with a, a wide brimmed white hat and a little like kit, like leather bag sort of. It's not really a doctor's kit, but it looks kind of like it. And he's he's ringing the doorbell and he's blowing kisses up to the second floor. And the wife of the critic answers the door and is like, oh, I've been waiting for you. Oh, this is going to be so wonderful. You know, last time you kind of hurt me a little bit, but uh, but I know it's all for the best. So she leads him upstairs into the bedroom where she lays down on the bed and he proceeds to start doing like massage on her. He's a masseuse in this situation. And the door to the bedroom is closed and locked. And so, of course, the theater critic gets home. He can hear all of these, like, grunting noises through the door. And he can hear that the bed is being, like, like rhythmically pushed. And so, in a huge fit of jealousy, busts through the door and attacks his wife. Yeah, not Lionheart. Not in, Lionheart. Not in, in white clothes, sure. masseuse drag. Right. Not him. He He chokes out his wife. And Lionheart's like... See ya. And you then know, while he's while he's about to choke out his wife, he's like, uh, d- don't worry about me. There's been 30 more where I've been. Right. Yeah. Like he's that. basically like, yeah, your wife's a fucking slut. Yeah. So later, smoke bomb, smoke bomb, grabs his hat off the statue out outside, puts it on, walks out through the front gate, walks up to the policeman who I think was supposed to be on detail with this, this critic and is in a Scottish accent says, I do believe that, that uh, Mr. Whoever is murdering his wife. You should maybe go look into that. Yeah. yeah He's like, the, the cop's like, why, thank you, good sir. I'll go check on that. Yeah, it's funny. This I, this is, a, I have a little bit of an objection to this because the wife it didn't do anything wrong and she dies. And it's kind of cruel. But, you know, it's... it's but that's it's, Othello. It's Othello and, it's a, and this is a silly horror movie and I'm not going to get all bent out of shape about this, but... I mean, Desdemona also doesn't deserve no the the treatment that she is given in Othello, the play. Right. And he had to make it fit Othello somehow. Right. Because he was doing this whole That's, sequence thing. That's yeah. his, this is his M.O. He, he is a serial killer with an ironclad M.O. Yeah, he is. He's the, he's the serial killer to end all serial killers. He's just super... Well, the, the theatrical serial killer to end all theatrical mm, serial killers. Indeed. Yes. Um, okay, so real talk, guys. Our favorite part of our favorite detail in this movie, both Eric and me, we've seen this movie many times. There's activity going on in the bedroom, at, uh, police activity. They're checking the corpse and taking the husband away, and you know, police stuff. And the camera sort of pans a little bit to the right as one of the cops is like walking out of the room, and you see on the dresser in the bedroom, a fruit stand, like one of those those elaborate flat like plates that fruit is stacked up upon, and it is full of green grapes. And the cop goes over that's like talking to the head theater critic and just grabs a grape and like strolls around the room and munches on grapes. Who has a fucking bedroom fruit stand? Bedroom grape stand. Yes. Yes. I guess if you are a lady of certain means... Like you would have your your staff or somebody like always provide fresh fruit on the stand in your boudoir and maybe like grapes I, were in season. I guess, but that's so 
I don't know. It was a set dresser idea. It made the room look more opulent. Well, if, if it was an idea, it meant that it came from somewhere. Somewhere out there, bedroom grape stands are a thing. Yes. Yes. You cannot escape the truth of that. Eric, I want a bedroom grape stand. <laughs> okay. I'm going to see if I... It, they probably have it at Amazon Prime. You could probably get one delivered tonight. But... And I could get the grapes delivered, too. You could. I don't really like grapes, though. You know, it could be just a bedroom fruit stand. We could put strawberries on it or something. Okay. Yeah. We're going to see... After we finish recording this, we're going to see if we can get that delivered. Maybe maybe a drone could drop it off. That would be even cooler. Holy shit. Bedroom grape stand drone. Yeah. Well, that was So that was Othello. What's the next... Oh, okay. Look, there's another part that we didn't mention where we learned some backstory. We learned the story about Lionheart and how he died. And you see he, after the 1970 Critics' Choice Awards, which aren't the Shakespeare Awards, but the theater awards, but the award of Shakespeare statue, he shows up where all the critics are getting together, drinking champagne, going, ha, 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 ha. We are critics. Aren't we clever critics? We are the most powerful people in London. (laughs) And he shows up. And says, hey, I deserve this thing. And has a bit of a breakdown. His daughter shows up and says, oh, you know, my father deserved this award. And Lionheart goes out on the balcony, recites the to be or to not not to be soliloquy. From Hamlet. From Hamlet. And then jumps off the railing. Right. And it's the best dummy fall ever, guys. They must have weighted the dummy, like the front end of the dummy. Because it like, it's like straight down. Like doesn't even it doesn't wiggle around or anything it just goes straight into the the water from yeah. like five four five or six stories up yeah he's wearing a full-on dracula cape it's like black satin with a red satin lining hey he's and it's a, like flapping behind him like superman as he's, he's going a, straight down into the thames a, he is a thespian eric he's a thespian yes yes he is he is theatrical in every way and the other part of the story he related during the uh the exposition dump during the uh, sword fighting scene, yeah. he explains how he got, you know, we all saw you die. How did you avoid that? And his body washed up on the banks of the Thames and he was rescued by the meth drinkers. Right. And he, they, I think they thought he was dead and then he like woke up and then they were like, oh, he's magical. And yeah, then he's they, come back from the dead. They made him drink a bunch of. He was like their messiah. Yeah. He, yeah. They made him drink a bunch of purple purple alcohol. Purple Pur- drink. Purple yeah. drink. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing, like the Thames is a tidal river. And so it's it the tide raises and lowers you know along with the tide of the mm-hmm. oceans uh, the river flows both ways and there have been people throughout history in London who make their living on the banks of the Thames when the river is at a low tide stuff washes up on the banks Yeah it's called mudlarking Oh mudlarking that is what it is called Oh interesting it's a it's a real important plot point in our mutual friend a Charles Dickens story mm. But that that's who, that's who these guys are. They're mudlarks. Yeah. And mud, meth drinkers. Mudlarking is a thing. Uh, I know this friend. It was a sex act. No, I'm probably sure. It is now. It is now. That's when you go to the Thames, find a thing, and then fuck in the, the mud. Oh. Yeah. Okay. No, that's not it, guys. It's not it at all. No, uh, my friend Rob, <laughs> my friend Rob has a, a, a friend from back home in Canada who now works for the Queen. He's the world's most interesting man. He he's a guild. Oh, yeah, Gary, Gary the Gilder. Gary the Gilder. He gilds things, which means he puts gold leaf and gold dust on furniture or anything that the royal family needs to be golden. That is his job. 
but he mudlarks and he's found like all kinds of shit in the the mud in the Thames. Wow, he gets more interesting every single time I hear about him. Yeah, he finds like old clay pipes. There's a lot of pipes. Apparently, that is like one of the things that people used to like. They'd smoke their pipe and be like, "Fuck this pipe! I'm done with this pipe! I hate this pipe!" And then they throw it in the Thames. Yeah, you know the pipe gets clogged up or something like that. And, you know, look, the Thames is is London's garbage dump. So. But yeah, they find interesting shit. You can find really old shit in the the banks of the Thames, too, because obviously it's been used as a waterway for transporting things for centuries. So you can find Roman stuff in there. You can find old British stuff in there, like all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So we learn about like his death and his resurrection. Right. uh, Backstory that we didn't tell you about uh, earlier on but on to the next murder right which is from uh henry the sixth part one yes uh so we mentioned there's one female critic and this is probably my favorite sequence in the movie she shows up at the salon like two hours after the salon has closed she knocks on the thing and uh henchman goon number one is like on the phone being cool and answers the door and she's the critic is like hey Henri told me that I should come at seven o'clock to get my, you know, my usual stuff done. My tips and toes. Tips and toes, blow out, that kind of shit. And, and she's getting a permanent because they were doing the permanent thing. Well, no. Originally, she was just supposed to have a wash and a blowout. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I, I think we are led to believe that she is she is persuaded to do other services. Oh, okay. So, so she goes in and uh, Henchman Goon of the World is like, yeah, well, Henri had to leave, but Butch is still here. Butch is real chic. You'll like him. And she's like, well, I don't know. And the goon's like, yeah, well, you know, he does Princess Margaret's hair and chicks seem to really dig that. So I don't know. You don't have to do, you know, your stuff with Butch. And then as if on cue, Vincent Price swans up the stairs. He has a giant Afro wig on. Like a blonde Afro. Yes. He is wearing the leisurest of leisure suits. Yes, and gold jewelry and his shirt's open. Yes. And he is camping it up to 11. That's funny. He's like, hey, I'm Butch. And then, can, like, for the rest of his appearance on the stairwell, just continues to flirt with the cop that has accompanied her. He's like, hey, you know, like, oh, well, you know. Who's this tall, handsome guy you brought with you? Yeah, who's this tall drink of water? Maybe uh, when we get done with uh, you, uh, we can... Uh... Why don't you come downstairs while we do her hair? And he's like, no, I'll sit up here while you you he's can like, go down and do, the, you know, like... Right. You do the hair down there, and he's giving him the eyeball. You know? he, he, yeah, there's one moment. They're walking down the stairs, and, like, Vincent Price just looks up the stairs, and for an uncomfortably long time, just, like, makes eyes at the cop. Mm-hmm. And then continues on his way. Right. So, yeah. So, like, they're 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 just chatting it up, gal pals. And he's like, you know, I really wish that you would let me dye your hair. Like, something like flame with ash. Flame ab- red with ash blonde. With ash highlights. Yes. Um, and so, she is convinced to put these, like, electric rollers on, which are all plugged into the wall somehow. And... The death in Henry the Sixth, Part One, that is the sort of infamous death in that, is Joan of Arc is burned at the stake. Joan of Arc is not a particularly 
uh well thought of character yeah, she's not really given fair treatment in the no well work. well she was the enemy I she mean, was the like, enemy yeah. the thing is is that another thing that people need to understand about shakespeare is when he wrote these plays yes he was writing them to make a good story and entertainment on stage but he also had to write the plays within the political context of the time you know oh well this person is in charge this is the king or the queen or the whoever I can't say anything bad about their family, because if I do, I could get killed. So I got to make sure that I totally blow these assholes on stage. Yeah, and this little girl was kicking the English army's ass in France, leading an army. And so she had to be a witch, right? Well, she had to be a witch. And they also there's a lot of language in the thing where it's kind of inferred that, you know, she's supposed to be this virgin and this like pure person, but probably she fucked her way into the you know into the position that she's in so yeah it's all slander it's all yeah it's it's like she's she is horribly mistreated in the in his play but that's because the british love that shit because they fucking hate the french and so she is burned at the stake uh and there's a lot of language about like keep just put more stuff on it that burns hotter. Like, dump some pitch on there. Put more more wood on top of it. She'll, yeah, so she'll die quickly. She'll die quickly. We're doing this mercifully because she's a maid. Yeah, so Lionheart is reading these lines while he's turning up the juice. Yeah, he's electrocuting uh, ele- her. Electrocuting her. And, he, and the lady he electrocutes, the actress, later went on to become his wife. Yes. And They you, met on this particular yeah. Uh, production. Yeah, and if you look it up... Diana Rigg does an interview with somebody where she describes the relationship between this actress and Vincent Price and just, you know, you know, talks about how they met and how they interacted with one another. And it is hilarious. Yeah. I think she was officially the one that introduced them. First. She, I think she was the one that introduced yeah. them. They, and they were they both wanted to get with the other one and they both came to her and she just sort of pointed them at each other. Yeah. And the, and the story she tells, I she told a lot of stories. The one I can recall is... It was going to be her birthday, and she was riding in a limo or something to the set with Vincent Price. And Vincent Price says, I don't know what to get her for her birthday. And she said, what you should get her for your birthday is something that you carry around with yourself everywhere you go. And he goes, what the? Oh, I get it. So, his dick. (laughs) So, the context is... Give her dick. His dick. Yes. Because she's, it's her birthday, birthday dick. Yes. And then like, so they got together and fucked. And then the woman, the actress called Diana Rigg on the phone when they were like both naked in bed and had some like quips for her. It's a, it's a really hilarious story. Diana Rigg tells it. It's just amazing and funny and cool. So the actress's name is Coral Brown. Coral Brown. Yes. He was married several times. Three times, in fact. Yep. In fact, if you, if you look up Coral Brown in IMDb, the picture that shows up is from Theater of Blood of her getting electrocuted. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. Well, the cop waiting upstairs smells smoke, and she goes down, and she's like a charred husk sitting in the in the electric chair, still being, still you know getting juiced. Mm-hmm. So then we move on to we we are literally left with two critics. We have head critic, and then we have the the queeniest. Critic who has these two poodles, matching poodles, that he calls his doggy woggies and his babies and his, you know, his little, his little precious things, blah, blah, blah. 
Played by Robert Morley, who right. is a character act, British character actor of note. It, you will have seen him in things. Yes. It, you just don't know who he is, but you'll see him and you'll be like, oh, that guy. He's rotund, he has huge eyebrows, and he's always like, oh, I'm British. Ah. Right. So the cops are like, okay, we literally only have two people to watch out for now. Head critic, and then also this other guy with the dogs. So we're going to split our resources Five cars are going to go over here. Four cars are going to go over here. We literally cannot let Vincent Price get to either one of these guys. Okay? Okay. Good. And lo and behold, Vincent Price and his head goon have dressed up one of the uh, meths goons to look like Vincent Price with stage makeup. And he drives by the head detective and like sort of their like command station uh, in a very obvious manner, and all of the police are like, fuck that plan we just had. Let's all chase this guy. So they do. Uh, and then our our last, our dog-loving critic comes home. The dogs are not with him because he was under, like, sort of protective custody, but they were at home. And so he comes home, opens up the door, starts looking around for his dogs, pulls back a curtain, and lo and behold, Vincent Price and a camera crew full of goons have uh, invaded his house because they are filming a segment called This Is Your Dish, which is like a little baked meat pie that says dish on it. Yeah, the the idea was that there was a television show in Britain. I don't. I think it was a fake television show fake for television this movie. Show. But the idea in the in the reality of this film is that there is a TV show on in Britain called This Is Your Dish, and they go to famous people's houses and make them some their favorite dish, sure, or something and like and that. And they serve like, it to oh, them. I'm so happy to be on my favorite dish. I don't know what to say. Yeah, and he's asking like, oh, which camera is it that I should look into? Blah blah blah. And you know they're they're doing the little shtick about being on the TV show, and he starts eating the meat pie. He's like, oh, this is delicious, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I just wish my little doggy walkies were here to share this with me. And of course, that's Vincent Price's cue to be like, well, actually, they are. Did he well actually him? He did. He did well actually him. He's like, well, actually, you've been eating your 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 dogs. And the guy's yes. like, remember Titus Andronicus? Yes. Yeah. Remember when uh, Tamora, the, the queen, was fed her two children baked in a pasty, uh... And then, of course, to be fair, who two children were murderous psychopaths. Oh, yeah. 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 No, they were awful. She was awful. Everyone in Titus Andronicus is awful. Which is funny because before this murder, they were are referring to it. And they're like, then now they know which the next murder is going to be. Right. They're like, oh, it's Titus Andronicus. How is he going to be killed? And the answer is like, they don't know. Everybody gets killed in every horrible way. in Titus Yeah, they're like, (laughs) they're like a guy gets thrown in a pit. There's a guy that gets beheaded. People's limbs get cut off. Uh, you know, there's a, a woman that's taken out into the, the forest and raped and her hands are cut off and her tongue's cut out. Like, <laughs> like, it just keeps going on and on. Now, side note, the entire reason why all of this bullshit happens in Titus Andronicus is because at the very beginning of the play, there's like a big war. The war is, is over. Titus Andronicus is like a huge war hero. And everyone's like, well, we need a king now. Who should we get to be king? And everyone unanimously is like... Titus Andronicus should be in charge because he's a good guy and he's a war hero. And everybody else in the play is like, yes, that's great. Thumbs up. We all agree on this. And then Titus rolls in and they're like, you're going to be our king. And he's like, I don't want to be king. I shouldn't be king. No, you. I don't, I don't want to be king. One of you guys should be king. And then all of the shit happens. All hell breaks loose. Because at that moment, it's like, oh, well, we have several options to be king now. And let's murder everyone. 
and somehow Titus Andronicus should get punished for all of this. And then by the end, people are eating each other's children. Uh, people are killing their children in front of them. Uh, Titus Andronicus cuts his hand off at one point. It's fucked up. So the the <laughs> so the the cops have no idea what kind of murder is going to go on, right? And the moral of the story too is, guys, if people ask you to be king, be king. That's it. Yeah. Otherwise, everybody's going to die. Yeah. If you true. learn nothing from Titus Andronicus, it's that you should be king. It's a play with a message, is what you're saying. Yes. So yeah, so the cops are really confused. They're like, we don't fucking know. There's a, there's two dudes left. Yeah. Well, so, yes, yeah, so, and so the big queen guy gets fed. So they hold him down and force feed him his cooked dogs until he chokes. Yes. Using like one of those funnels that they feed geese with. For, yeah. For, uh, the, the, for the foie gras. Mm-hmm. So they put this big metal funnel in his mouth and just like use like a, a pestle and like ram it down his throat until he chokes. It's really gross and disturbing. Yeah, it's not good. It's really it's really horrifying, but it's done with such. Such, Such glee. maniacal glee, yes. So gl- much glee. Glee is the exact word I was going to use. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's so that it really takes it. It's horrifying and yet it's gleeful, which makes it good. Okay, so we're down to one critic, and he knows what's up because he's been on board the the Edward Lionheart train this whole time, and so he gets called to the film set where Diana Rigg is doing her makeup artist stuff, and she's like. Hey, I just want to tell you, my dad called me this morning, so he's alive. And the head critic's like, yeah, I know, I saw him. And she's like, yeah, no, no, I, I get it. I get it now. I heard his voice. I'm really excited about this. He's really scared of the cops. And the theater critic's like... Yeah, he's, she, she says he's confessed to all these killings. Yeah, he's... And he's going to turn himself in. He is on board with not doing this anymore. And the theater critic's like, well, I don't know if I really believe all of that. And she's like, no, 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 he, I'm going to meet him later. Will you come with me? And once again, the the feminine charms of Diana Rigg are working on this fellow because he's like, well, I don't think I would do this for anyone else, but she is really pretty and she seems so nice and I don't know, maybe I don't know. And she's like, nobody else can come with us. And he's like, yeah, that's that's great. That's good. Knowing that the second that she leaves his car, he's going to call the cops and be like, guys, I got this. Let's set up a sting. So they do. They set up a sting. They put a beacon, a homing beacon in his car. They have a guy hiding in the trunk of uh, the car to, like, keep tabs on what's going on and, like, report back. They're all on CB radios. They're all on radios. And she rolls up and is like, hey, I'm going to go with you and let's let's go see my dad. And the first thing the head theater critic says is, there's a homing beacon in the car. I just want to let you know the police are going to follow us. And she's like, oh, well, okay, but you should let me drive then, because if my dad sees you with me, he'll probably, like, freak out and run away or something. And of course, thinking with his dick, he's like, oh, yeah, no, that sounds totally reasonable. Bonked on the head by goons. Bonk. And then he wakes up in the theater, tied to a chair. Yes. And there's a ramp pointing at his head. With flaming daggers. With flaming daggers, because... He is going to be blinded like Gloucester in King Lear, because that's the last play. Although it works out like King Lear in an unfortunate way. Right. So he is, Lionheart demands that the final critic, like, present the award to him as he should have done two years before. The guy refuses. The Rube Rube Goldberg dagger device kicks in. Of course, there's hijinks that ensue. Well, his, 
but his lieutenant goon is there, like saying, you will give this award to Lionheart. And he says, no, I won't. And think of your daughter. Think of your daughter, Lionheart, and how she's going to suffer when all this comes out. Cut to Diana Rigg reciting King Lear. Well, but, well the goon removes his wig right. and his mustache and it's to reveal Diana Rigg. The lieutenant goon was Diana Rigg all along. And you can actually pretty much figure that out early on in the movie. But I, you know what? I think you can, but I think it would be easy to not, to to not, not be pay paying attention. attention. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she immediately goes into lines from King Lear. She's the good daughter. So she's, you know, praising her father, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, yeah, give him the award. No, I will not. Okay. My daughter will give me the award. Great. Rube Goldberg dagger devices started. Uh, and then I believe that things go awry when the the drunk goons, the groundling goons, are given the opportunity to drink actual alcohol because they start pushing and shoving and mm-hmm. and uh, they accidentally kill Diana Rigg. Accidentally on purpose, accidentally. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Uh, and then, you know, it's full bore Lear at this point because, you know, his, his daughter is dead. His faithful daughter is she dead. She recites the dying lines. They do the, the like the, yeah, they're, they're at the French camp. They're both captive. She's, 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 yeah, she's on her way out. She's going to get hanged. Yeah. Yeah. And then and, the theater burns down. And then the theater burns down and he falls through the ceiling in the end. Well, they re- they rescue head uh head critic. Yeah, they rescue head at the critic. last minute, of course. Yeah. And then they take him outside and in fucking goddamn theater critic smarminess, Lionheart crawls up onto the roof with his dead daughter and falls through the roof to their death, both of their death. And he has to make like some smarmy one-liner like, oh well, you know, you do have to give him credit. He knew how to make an exit, even if he yeah, couldn't do the dinner. Still, he's still overacting till the end, but he did know how to take make an exit. But um, and he like leaves, and like the last person on screen is Milo O'Shea, and like the guy leaves, and like you just see him, just like fucking dick. Yeah, everybody's and, dead. Everybody's dead, and just the one critic lives, and the right. cop lives, and. The meth drinkers are dead. Lionheart, his daughter, are dead. dead. Every other critic is dead. My theory immediately upon watching the film this time is that the head critic engineered this whole thing to eliminate all of his competition critics so he could become even richer and wealthier and more powerful in, powerful in the critic world. Yeah, it doesn't really work like that, though. You're always going to need extra critics because there's like there's like your your top tier theater that needs critiquing. Then there's like your cool off Broadway theater that needs critiquing. And then there's like five million storefront theaters that actually don't need critiquing, but they're going to try to get you to critique them. And not all of them are bad, but a lot of them are. So we need critics, but we need better critics. You need critics that a don't sleep through your shows, uh, don't make out with their dates during your shows, don't immediately hate your show before they even walk through the door because they don't like fill-in-the-blank type of theater. These are all critics I've run into over the years. Yeah. So, I, it's clear we both recommend this film. Oh my god, guys, go watch it. It's, it's great. I don't think it's streaming right now as we record this, but it will be streaming somewhere. They oftentimes have it streaming during the fall, like around Halloween. Yeah, it's, it'll be on Netflix and or Amazon and or Hulu. I feel like it was on Amazon the last time I remember it streaming. Yeah, 
I have a copy of it, so we watched the copy. Yeah. But it's it's available. It's widely available. I would wager that most of most of the people who would listen to the show have probably seen this film i think so i know that like every time i talk to people that that like talk about the show like they're like oh yeah theater of blood so the i don't greatest think... vincent price movie ever really well i don't know about that i don't know about ever but it's a good one it's a real good one now the one thing that is streaming if you can't find theater of blood but you'd like to kind of get the flavor of it the abominable dr fives is streaming on youtube so that is out there. You can see that. There's actually a bunch of Vincent Price stuff that's streaming on YouTube. So if you need a fix, you can find it. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a... Thanks for listening to Cinema Super Collider. Follow us on Twitter at Cinema Supercast or join our Facebook community where we post early warnings about our upcoming movie selections and also invite you to join our film discussions. You can email us questions, comments, and suggestions for future shows at cinemasupercast at gmail.com. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. See you next time. Rush. Your Shakespeare, start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and the women you will wow. With the wife of the British ambassador, try a crack out at Troilus and Cressida. If she says she won't buy it or take it, make her take it, what's more as you like it. If she says your behavior is heinous, kick her right in the Coriolanus. Your Shakespeare, and they'll all cow tow. Brush up your Shakespeare, start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and the women you will wow. If you can't be a ham and do Hamlet, they will not give a damn or a damlet. Just recite an occasional sonnet, and your laugh will have plenty upon it when your baby.